kids like to feel like Superman. And sometimes you feel like Superman when you're on a bike. You know, you feel like you're flying, definitely. I still do. Even my weakened state, my old state, I still feel like I'm flying sometimes, just completely. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of the people behind some of the world's leading companies, movements, and ideas. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, or check us out at commonthreadsmedia.com. I'm your host, David Swain. All right, well, here with Gary Fisher, the uh, pioneer in the biking world and definitely in the mountain biking world. And for me, looking back at you know your story, and I want to talk through from growing up to getting into the cycling world, really center of a lot of a pretty major cultural movement um, in the '60s, going into the '70s. I think you've seen a lot more than just the biking change. Yeah, and definitely. <laughs> that was. Uh, it's funny. This uh, week end is the 50th anniversary of people that had anything to do with the whole earth catalog and that's Stuart brand and that whole group of people that like put together this catalog that was a catalog of catalogs which was sort of a precursor to the internet in a way and it's it's a bunch of old people you know it's going to be a reunion thing where is it it's uh fort mason you know, the San Francisco Art Institute of all things, my goodness gracious. So um, that'll be a blast from the past to go there and see that, you know, see those folks. Yeah. Let's let's start with just growing up. Um, you know, your influence. Well, I, I call myself the luckiest man on earth a lot of the time. And, I, and you know, nobody gets to decide where they're going to be born. I've never seen anybody pull that one off. Anyway, uh, I was born in Oakland, Oak Knoll Naval Hospital. And uh, it's funny, right after I was born there, they tore that place down and rebuilt another one. Now, about five years ago, they tore that one down. So I've outlasted a hospital. It's a miracle. You know, I think about all these bikes I've broken, but you know, the body heals. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, it really is. I still get to function. I can still ride a bike. You know, I've broken all these other bikes and things. Anyway, I was born in Oak Knoll Naval Hospital. My father was in the Navy, and when I was six months old, we took a boat to Guam. My mother says I got tremendously seasick. My mother liked to sing, and she sang in the nightclubs there. She was something. I mean, she went to Beverly Hills High School. On her 80th birthday, she pulls out these old headshots, and all the kids, we died. All these different hairdos, different uh, makeup, different clothing and everything. Her father, Fred Applegate, was in the movie business. He worked for Warner Brothers for 40 years. Um, he developed a job called a script director. When I was a small boy, well, that's where we went from Guam. Because uh, my mother made such a scene in Guam. My father went crazy. And my mother and I wound up going back to Beverly Hills and living with my grandparents. My grandfather uh, was an open water swimmer. He was a, you know, a runner in the park. 
And to sit at his table was a magnificent experience. Indeed, he was into health food, as were a, a number of people in the 30s in Hollywood. And we go to the Los Angeles, you know, farmer's market, and then he'd bring home all this stuff. And to sit at, at there as a kid, and I was like four and a half years old. And, you know, he'd bring actors to the house all the time. And he'd had a tweed suitcase with a camera with flash bulbs and a tripod. And he'd subject us kids to these half hour sessions of, we're going to take some photos now and they're going to be good. And this is what you're going to do. <laughs> so, so, so food and healthy food back then. Well, well exercise. And his exercises food. that were, you got your. I, your yeah, well, I mean, you know, whatever it was, I got into being eating well. You know, and we're in a scene here and, and later on more yeah. too. I mean, when we lived in, we moved from Beverly Hills to San Francisco. My mother met another man and she married him and he turned out to be an architect and a hell of a good one. And um, we lived in the Sunset District in San Francisco and around the corner, block and a half away, my best friend was Japanese. So I got into Japanese food, too, when I was about five. You know, as a lot of kids did growing up around here. And different types of food and everything. And that's all, you know, that's part of the whole thing. But the big thing was being an athlete, yeah. you know. That was a huge thing. And then the 60s, that was, um, I ran away from home. I, you know, quit the bike scene. My hair was too long. It was over my ears. And I had met a band named The Grateful Dead. <laughs> And the Quicksilver Messenger Service, can you imagine? They played in Pescadero, California, three nights in a row and attracted less than 100 people, you know, over the three-night span because they weren't popular, you know. But they're all into health food. And we, I work for a company called Grand Ultimate Steward Company, or better known as Gus. And we used to cater to the Grateful Dead. We did the um, the Carousel Ballroom, which later became the you know, Fillmore West. Man, I painted uh, Bill Graham's uh, offices one time. I remember that, you know, and we decorated the Jefferson Airplane Mansion. That was rather fantastic. You know, the one on Fulton Street. And what years was this? This was in 66, 67, uh, 68, 69. 69 came December, the Rolling Stones to San Francisco, and they wanted to play in Golden Gate Park. We held a meeting, you know, Sam Cutler from the Rolling Stones, Sonny Barger from the Hells Angels, Bill Thompson from the Jefferson Airplane, and Ron Rackow. It was at Ron Rackow's house on Sacramento Street. And I was a kid cleaning the place up and taking care of things, and this meeting's all going down. And didn't work out in the city. It was going to be Golden Gate Park. Went to uh, Sears Point Raceway. Someone out there at Sears Point figured out the Rolling Stones were going to do a film and they had other vested interests. They wanted a cut of that whole thing. The deal was off. And at last minute, you went to this god-awful place called Altamont. And we had a disaster. And mm -hmm. that ended the scene. And at that moment, you know, that scene ended. And I said, I'm getting back into bikes. <laughs> and how old were you there? I was like uh, 19, you wow. know, yeah. by that time. But watching that whole scene and a lot of stuff like that, you know, during that time, because I was right there at ground zero, you know, it was like uh, Jack Leary was my best friend, Timothy's son, you know, it was like the bear, worked for him, worked for, you know, a lot of these 
folks that get written up and everything. I worked with them when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> and later on, you know, it, it, it affect the whole thing I think affected me in that, like, I'd never been afraid to go up to the top guy and say, hey, let's talk right now. Right, and you fast forward a few, a, a decade into into starting the mountain bike scene. Well, that was, a, you know, the big thing with that was the Japanese supply chain, yeah. you know, getting that to work. And that was, that company I started with Charlie Kelly, we started with $600, you know, nothing, you know. And I was working for Bicycling Magazine, and yeah. that always helps like crazy, you know, like you get to know everybody in the in the business. And... uh we did a, uh, a presentation on the mountain bike in 1981 at the New York show at the bequest of bicycling. And we had practiced it really well. I mean, Charlie was another rock and roll victim. Right. I mean, you know, another a roadie for a band called the Sons of Champlin. And it's really funny. I mean, uh, Charlie's, uh, the guy he'd be on the road a lot with, uh, Howie Hammerman was, uh, the sound guy and happened to be George Lucas's third employee. We used to practice this whole slideshow and the whole thing in George's uh, screening room, you know, about once a month. And we got out to New York and we had this thing wired and we had all these incredible photos from five years previous, you know, of, um, you know, the repack races in Fairfax, California, you know, uh, Sierra Nevadas, you know, Crested Butte, Colorado, and just you know, years of these meticulous photos by Wendy and Larry Craig. And Larry Craig, now who's he? Larry Craig is the steel guitarist for uh, Neil Young. Those are the circles we were running in. You know, it's just people, you know, the mountain bike thing, the bike thing would cut across all lines. I mean, Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, they got drafted by a guy named Tom Pruce. Tom Pruce was like in our club, Belmont Bicycle Club. And he was just a crazy guy. I mean, he was crazy. And he had a record studio and everything in the 60s, and Tom lost it. You know, Tom was found on Bridgeway in Sausalito, you know, shooting a car, you know, for 45 caliber revolver. And that's the last time I've heard of him. And they get picked up and put in a loony bin. But man, he put on some incredible shows, some incredible gigs. And he put on that gig, you know, with uh, the Grateful Dead. <laughs> You know, it's just stuff happens like this to people all the time. It's just happenstance, and then what do you do with it, and do you go somewhere with it? Right. And that's what I did. I said, hey, I really liked hanging out with those guys. You know, And it sort of filled in a thing that I'd seen before because when I was a kid, we were living in Burlingame, and we go on rides with the Belmont Bicycle Club. Uh, we go through La Honda, and a lot of time we'd stop at Ken Kesey's place down here and just go, hey, check this out, you know. And then the Hells Angels, they'd see us. We'd be like in uh, San Gregorio, Pescadero, you know, little cities out there by right. the coast. And they'd be looking at us, and we'd be looking at them. And they'd be looking at us, and we'd be looking at them. And we'd just go, freaks. <laughs> Smile a little bit. And, you know, and everything was cool. It was all right. So why don't we go back? The interesting story of the progression in the cycling world like I, the the names i you know the larkspur canyon gang the yeah. the stories that go back for me like looking at a lot of the movements that have started through sports and like skateboarding for me right. it was bmx yeah, you know yeah, here yeah. mountain biking they all have this similar 
well, story of this it, it, community and right, these roots right. and kind it's of not the nuts and bolts. Yeah, the nuts and bolts are the carrier. It's the places you go, the people you meet, the stuff you do. That's what makes it a great adventure. And like we're just rolling around on these wheels and things and finding different places to do it. And what made the mountain bike scene so attractive was all that space was really open. I mean, not that. I mean, when we started doing this, there were very few people out hiking. Even you know it wasn't a very popular sport. You didn't see many people. And all of a sudden, here's all this stuff that's car-free. You don't have the cars and cops of concrete. We used to like joke about that all the time. Right. And, and literally, that was it. You're out in your own place. You felt free. You could do anything you wanted to. So that was a huge attractant. And then it being something that hadn't been done in so many years. I mean, you know, and, you know, because the reality is when bicycles first came along, you know, got popular 120 years ago, there were very, very, very few paved roads. Everything was sort of off-road. But this whole notion of like purposely trying to go fast down hills and be acrobatic and everything, well, that was something for circus freaks back in the day. And then this became something more of reality. You know, it's really funny. And it's that's the thing that's really blowing me away is you look at like um, – you go back to a YouTube video of Crested Butte, 1980. You'll come up with a video that shows some really early riding there in 1980, 81. And you'll notice people like trying to get across a creek and only about a third of them make it all the way through. It's like really pathetic. And that was the nature of the beast. Even in Colorado, the riders weren't that great. And what's the big phenomena? In the last, you know, 20 years is, man, people get air and they do crazy stuff and it works. And the bikes have gotten better. Okay. Uh, the riders, incredibly better because they have, they have video. They can watch each other do this stuff. And then they have ways of practicing. You know, they'll practice. They started by jumping into bodies of water and then the foam pits. And now it's like airbags. You know, and you can practice over and over again and not hurt yourself and everything. And these guys get it wired. And there's so many of them. And then the trails themselves. I mean, uh, you know, the trails uh, used for all the World Cup and all the uh, World Championships and everything were just sort of found things. And there was very little, like, work put on them. And there, there wasn't of understanding. You know, the basic physics of it really wasn't well understood. Compared to now, there's just lot of trail builders and the, actually if you, you want to get into the bicycle business right now you might consider trail building it's one of the best paying <laughs> parts of the bike business right now and it's completely outdoors and it has a lot of manual labor going for it but it's really pays well because a really well-built trail makes you feel like a genius rider you know and makes everything really work so all those things you know is finally starting to click so the story of pushing the technology to the limits, I mean, the story, you know, you guys, so you had the, the first bikes that you were taking out there were 1930s Schwinn's, is that right? Well, it was, yeah, found objects. Yeah. I mean, nobody right. had the kind of money to make anything in the very beginning. And, and actually, the mountain bike um, craze up here, you know, that's really like, really was taken off up in Northern California, got helped by the guys from Southern California, the BMX guys. Because they had a cruiser class that used the same size wheel, 
So that's where the rims, the good alloy rims came from. And then uh, guys like the Cook Brothers and Bullseye and all these makers down there, they got it right away. They said, oh, we know what you're trying to do. We'll help you. We think you're cool. We'll do it. You know, So they were great. But um, I went after the bigger numbers. I wanted to go after the Japanese because they showed a lot of interest. They got it. They really got the whole nature side of it and the whole aesthetics and everything. And um, they were just showing up like crazy at our doorstep and they wanted to do stuff. So, you know, I did this show, the presentation in New York with Charlie and we killed him. You know, they loved it. And after that, I said, I'm coming. I'm going to come over there. So I go to, you know, Chinatown over in San Francisco, buy a ticket, round trip, 400 bucks. You know, you go on a couple of days, boom, boom. I show up and say, hey, I'm here. Let's do bike stuff, man. I will show you how to make this stuff. And what I want from you is like, give me first delivery. I want the best price and I want terms. And I worked with all of them, you know, like, you know, there was a whole group on the Suntour side, you know, there was Sigino, Diacompi, Sanshin, all this, and then on an Ishiwata tubing, and then on um, the uh, Shimano side was, you know, uh, it was Rio Marui and his trading company, and it was Shimano, Takagi, you know, and, and you know, a, a number of guys, Tioga, all those mm-hmm. brand there, and, and there were sort of two competing groups of bicycle parts makers and makers over in Japan, and I worked with all of them, you know, and um, I wound up, the Japanese government gave me a nice loan, you know, and uh, we did take a lot of equipment and got complete bikes done. And it was fantastic. You know, it was a really great thing for everybody involved because, uh, you know, we made domestically, we were making a lot of bikes. It was amazing how many bikes we could put together ourselves. But man, it was nothing compared to what those guys could do. We're doing with good assembly lines and everything. So, so negotiating terms, going to Japan to work with some of the biggest manufacturers on the on the planet, you know, like, what, well, what, what was your uh, going into this? Like, you're a biker, you'd worked as a bike mechanic, you'd worked at Bicycling Magazine, and, you know, then you're sitting across the table negotiating terms and setting up this company. Talk about, like, the entrepreneurship learnings that's, for you. That's a funny thing. <laughs> it's like, I can remember in the beginning, you know, thinking, well, what's the laws against doing that? What do you have to do to become an importer, you know? And... It took me about an hour to think, there's no laws. There's nothing. You just go do it. You, know, you go make it happen. Go make these things happen, you know? And I saw people do it with other stuff. I mean, you know, the way my father thought, the way the other people like I'd meet, they thought they'd go and do crazy stuff. I mean, I did. Um, I also did light shows in the 60s. And that was a really cool thing. But it got out of it. We had 10 people on our show. There's, we were like, 16, yeah. 17, 18. We had 10 people in the show. We charge $1,000 a night when, you know, that's what we wanted. And Bill Graham wanted to charge like a, a pay 100 bucks a night. And that would be pay for our bulbs. That was it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You know, it's like I've always been the sort of thing, scale it up, make it work, you know, and watch those guys too. I mean, I watched Bill Graham take over the uh, Carousel Ballroom, turn it into Fillmore West, you know, and it was, you know, Janice Joplin was there and her manager and they wanted the money, man. And he steps up and says, I'm going to take over this place. Nobody stopped him. And he <laughs> did, you know, he had the money and he took it over. Boom, bitty, boom, bitty, boom, bitty, boom. And it's like, you just step in and say, here's who I am. Here's what I do. I can guarantee this. And you know, it's going to work. 
And I say, okay, it's, it's the same old bullshit that's going on today, you know, right, right here, right here in this crazy town, you know, San Francisco, all this stuff. People like still have to sell their stuff, you know, and you got to be part show person, part all that. Okay. I'm with my, there, look, see that photo right over there. That's me. I'm on a horseback. See, it's a little rat hole park in uh, Hollywood. I'm four and a half. My mother would bring me there and the Disney's would be there, you know, Walt Disney and his family. And he'd be going off on, well, I'm going to build this place. It's great for the family, you know? So we wind up going to the opening day of Disneyland. And um, I'm at, I mean, I'm almost five, you know, and I go with my best friend, Arthur Robbins. And we go around and the next day we go and we build a miniature Disneyland in his backyard. Well, my mom knows somebody in the LA Times. She calls him up and says, hey, I got a story for you. They're always looking for a story, you know. They, I got in the LA Times when I was under five years old. That was my first major, you know, exposure and stuff. And I've sort of been, the, I, I say, the luckiest man on earth. I had a tremendous amount of opportunity come, you know, towards me. And, you know, thank God for my grandfather to train me right. And my great-grandfather, he's famous for doing speeches, you know, and I go, sometimes I'll be talking and stuff going, where did that come from? You know? <laughs> so you got to take everything you can and amplify it really hard to get any kind of a notice these days. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, yeah, you, you know, really. And at the same time, make it delicious. It has to be delicious and, you know, taste so, so great and everything. And that's the thing about, you know, nutrition and health and all that. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, we were talking about it earlier, and I was saying, yeah, you got to get rid of this notion of, you know, food is entertainment, you know, and go back to like, well, you know, this is nutrition, and this is medicine, and all that. But at the same time, it's that's a game about habits versus, um, you know, be very, very careful what your habits are. That's what you do every day. You know, you can't have dessert every day, you know, that's a bad habit. But man, don't get rid of desserts. If you space them out, they become a bigger celebration. Every time. So it's all those things that, you know, we humans are, man, if we don't have this stuff, there's nothing worth living for, right? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that stuff. There's this stuff that you got to have those sort of goals. It's like, you know, today, you know, I decided I'm going to ride a race in, in a month called the, uh, the Iceman. And it's always a lot of fun up in Michigan. Oh, they have fun. But man, I'm thinking I got to get my ass in shape, you know? And I love... Still, I mean, these this goal. yeah. goals to work, you know, and it's got to be a challenge, but a chance. But it better be, you know, you better be good at it. So we've got some of your bikes sitting right behind you here. What's your riding of choice or preference? Uh, right these now, I've days? been just I've been riding a road bike a lot. Yeah, because it's a, it's like the easiest for fitness in a way, and that you can take your effort and make it what you want to make it. You know, go as hard as you want to go. You always got a place to sit. You could divide up the gears you use, you know, whatever gear you want and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's a basic exercise machine, you know, and then I got a, a mountain bike over here. And then outside, I got parked an electric bike that's sitting outside today, you know, waiting. Yeah. And that's the shopper bike. That's one you take on the ferry, I go to the city and go get stuff done really quickly. It's super efficient. So talking about cities, actually, uh, you know, I've heard you speak in the past about you know, observations you've seen from around the world of places where the bike is set up as part of, 
you know, we're talking health and nutrition and, you know, you get into childhood obesity and getting kids outside and all of the systematic things that need to change to get people moving and outside. What have you seen as signs of hope or signs of, you know, what, what are the ingredients that... I see it in places that aren't here, you know, that, that's the thing is we aren't taking it very seriously at all at this moment. You know, it's not in San Francisco, in our city, not very much. I mean, there's some things, uh, Mayor Breed is, she's brought certain things along and I think she's got a transportation um, administer, you know, somebody new, I think is probably pretty cool, but we've yet to see, I mean, you know, what they'll do to do something. Cause it's like, it's pathetic. <laughs> I gotta say, I mean, the bike coalition, you know, which I've been a member of and I pay my dues 45 years, Oof. It's one of the oldest bike collisions in, in the United States. And uh, man, there have been some really crazy battles and everything like that. But um, yeah, the state of it is rotten. I mean, you know, it's like it's dangerous. You know, it's not the place you want to raise your kid. And that's the really a bad measure. You know, and what I bring forth now is let's go back to like 100 years ago. They had, you know, really bad smog in London and a lot of places. It was really super unhealthy. But I think a lot of places, you know, like I know there are 10 cities in Germany that are going to zero pollution. There will not be a single combustion engine inside those cities. And it's over a 10-year period they're doing this. And those places, I feel like I could raise a kid there. And it's a good thing. You know, it's, it's, and it's nuts what we've done. I mean, my father made a tremendous amount of money off of Orange County. You know, he designed a big portion of it. You know, the suburbs were a great boon. But now the whole thing, it's like it's become... A mess, you know, and and Marin County is built out that way. I mean, it's all our transit now is like the world's most expensive. It's called, you know, 1.3 passenger in, a, in an automobile. It's like it's so broken. In San Francisco, you know, we we thought, ah, uh, you know, well, uh, the rideshare thing will help. No, it put forty to fifty thousand extra vehicles in the in the city a day. So it's like that's a big mess. I like the scooters. Right. I like the scooter people. I like. The electric bike share. I do jump, but jump doesn't. It's it's <laughs> geofenced off to not enough of the city. They're not enough of the bikes in the city. It's the classic way thing. The way you kill a transit system is you make it lame. You know, and who I I don't know who's in charge of this one. I mean, our good old board of supervisors. Who, but you know, this is <laughs> this is sort of stupid. You know, I mean, really stupid. You know, because I like those guys because they got the right attitude. You know, there are too many massive crushing deaths, you know, way too many. It's just way too dangerous. It's not a place you'd set your seven-year-old free. No way, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like I see other big cities that are going the way of it being safer. Okay, come on. I go to a lot of third-world cities too, my friend. And I know, I mean, there's not many of those cities I'd let a seven-year-old free and everything. I mean, uh, so it's a big problem, you know, and it's the old, emperor. we don't see the emperors wearing mm-hmm. naked, you know, we don't see it at all. You know, it's crazy. And we got that now. And then we've had something that's built, been building up, um, you know, for the last 50 years. And that's, we're right here, Marin County, the birthplace of low growth, you know, and it was 50 years ago that the developers from LA came up and said, hey, we want to take the population to 1.4 million. The population was 200,000 at the time. Today, the population is at 265,000. And it's typical of all in California. The whole, like, 
things spread for better or for worse. And, you know, and I've, you know, I got to say, I mean, I love being able to go out and uh, you do too. You told me, right. you know, all the open space we got and everything is so great. But at the same time, it's like, man, we've made a mess, you know, and how are we going to get out of this one? And I think you look at how people live around the world and other places and everything, there are different ways you could live. And I know that, you know, the whole process, you know, of I watched my father as uh, uh, working with developers, you know, city councils the attorneys. And um, hey, I love the fact that we are conscious and we take care of things, but man, we're pricing ourselves out. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the how prepared are we for the inevitable emergency, which is going to be the shaker, right? And it's like, that's going to make things really crazy because I know that 40%, 7-0 earthquake, 40% of the buildings will be red tagged in San Francisco, you know? And it'll be similar in a lot of the other cities around. I mean, that's going to create a real housing shortage. You think we've got one now? It's nothing, you know, compared to like when we have a disaster like that, you know. So things will change a lot. And some people will make a lot of money from it. Some things will benefit like crazy, you know, and it'll change. But like, man, some people get the amnesia that, uh, well, I'll be dead before it changes. And then... Uh, there's others that like, well, you know, maybe something like this will happen. And damned if it doesn't. <laughs> and cultural changes that drive use of bikes. I mean, you've seen over decades. Like, well, that's the, a funny like thing. In the 70s with the gas crisis. Well, the- you know, bikes. <laughs> yeah, the, the gas crisis. I mean, that was something. I mean, one year it was uh, hard to, you were all the gas lines, right? Yeah. You'd have to stand in line. So bike sales went from 4.7 million to 15 million in one year. And it was totally knee-jerk. And the next year, it went back down to 7.4. A lot of people never had a good experience at all. It was sort of a joke. You know, I'll go out and buy a bike. That'll take care of that. You know, it's funny cultural things. And now, I mean, the the thing is, we've seen where, like, people pay a lot of money for a bike. I mean, boy, the average bike that we sell is higher than it's ever been, you know, in history, you know. And it's because all the materials and things, you know, the bikes are made in a way of a Formula One car or, you know, a. Uh, an item you get that Nassau would make or something. And then uh, the opposite is like people don't want to own the bike. It's much better to share the bike. I mean, I got a nice electric bike out there, but I like taking the jump bikes because I I lock up the jump bike in any part of town. I don't worry about it one little bit. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to own that thing. You know, and and that's coming. I mean, more and more people like, I don't want to own that thing. I don't want to have it. And that's part of that whole like, housing's getting smaller. Everybody's got this stupid storage unit they got to keep going and everything. And it's like, nah, can I just, you know, borrow it, rent it, you know? So I I see that coming like big time. (laughs) Well, so one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, you've talked about the Belmont Bike Club and the Larkspur Gang, like the aspects of community for youth that right. help. Yeah, yeah. Like what drew you in then, and what do we need to do to create an environment for kids where they're getting outside? <laughs> well, that's uh, we wouldn't need to build things. And I was talking to the guys at Red Bull last week, and they have the Red Bull um, Pump Track Championships down in Arkansas this weekend. And they wanted me to come down to that, but it's conflicting with the thing with the whole earth things. So I'm sort of like conflicted. I want to hang out with the old guys and talk about the old days, or I want to get into something that's new. Because their whole initiative, and it's Claudio, the guy who announces on, um, you know, the downhills and everything, 
Yeah, the guy, the crazy guy. I love him. He is trying to put pump tracks in all these third world places, you know, because mm-hmm. it's easy to do. And and that's we need a lot more venues. I mean, we're like saying for NICA, you know, that the um, National Interscholastic uh, Cycling Association, it wants to have. Um, I want to have a bike track or in a, a place, a space for an event like you got a baseball field, like in every neighborhood, you know? So it's going to be, I don't, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be mountain bike 100%. You know, it's got to be bike, and it's got to be something the kids like. That's all it's got to be. And Because the magic thing about this whole program is kids really like to ride bikes of all forms. It's amazing. And, and the scooters, too. The scooter thing is happening, you know? So it's like, it's funny. You know, it's like a... The two-wheel revolution is going through the kids, you know, your kids and everything. And then the, the other part of it, that's a, there's that whole emotional part of it. The other part is like, this thing's really efficient. You know, an electric bike is an amazingly efficient device because you're a big part of the propulsion of it. <laughs> it's a shared propulsion device. Yeah, it's the pump tracks, man. I would have died for one of those as a kid. Right. We were building our ramps with oh, our man. couple two by fours, and you know, my kids have only been to the one up in Truckee, in Tahoe, and it's watching that over the past five years, and it's all community built. Right. Watching that thing expand, yeah, has been amazing. And right. you go from there used to be five kids there to every time we show up now, it's it's just packed. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's something kids can do with their parents or on their own or whatever they want. No, that's what we're putting. We're putting our money. There's all the kids' programs. You know, that's uh, Trek is putting. Uh, we're putting over a million dollars a year in it right now mm-hmm. on that Nike side, and so starting at middle school and then through all the high schools, and then uh, we'll do whatever discipline you know really works for the kids. You know, and they really like it. And then our our overseas. Guys, they have different versions. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many of them have their own kids' versions, have had it for a long time. You know, I remember Czech Republic like 10 years ago I'm there, and I went to an event after a big marathon mountain bike race. The next day was for kids. The youngest were like a year and a half old, and they're going like about 50 meters with their parents, and they're all on these little four-wheel things, and they go up every year group to 14. And they had races for all of them, and they have a scene going on with it. And you look at how many good riders they have, you think, what have they been doing? Well, that's they've been doing this for a long time, you know. And this is, um, you know, they don't do it. A lot of countries, they don't do it. You know, Europe's the hotbed. You know, you go to countries, you know, Asia and a lot of places, no, this doesn't exist there. And in the States, it's a new thing. And, uh, you know, it's we're going to catch up with the other countries because you you look at those countries do a lot better than we do and, and part of it is you know the other parts to it i mean the, the sports more established they spend more money per head you know on sport they have better coaches you know all that but they they work it harder they just got more kids to start you know and and that's what we want to do we know we can do you know we're we're bound to determine we want to be in every single high school in the united states <laughs> you know so that's 179,000 high schools, and I know we're going to do it. You know, the kids like it too much. What states are really taking off? Well, you know, some of the ones you'd expect, like Minnesota and Wisconsin, and then um, there's a lot in the southeast, and um, it's just about, I think it's 25 states right now. It's right around half. And, uh, 
it's almost doubling every year. It's, it's the amount of riders, the amount of kids that actually do it, you know, overall is almost doubling. And, you know, it's still got a number of years to go to be something really big, hmm. but it's getting there. It'll be, I think in 10 years, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be one of the major kids sports for sure. What do you think about making the bikes and the gear accessible? I mean, I have, I still, I've been around bikes my whole life and right. I go into a bike shop and I still have that level of intimidation factor. Well, that's, you know, uh, that's one of the things, if we're going to make this a thing for all the kids in the nation, there's a lot of places where like, uh, there's got to be a limit on what the bike is. And we go, there are three ways. There's a, We've spoken with SRAM and Shimano and our suppliers and say, hey, we want to make a special model. We want it to be you know, cheap and good and long-lasting. And uh, the second aspect is putting a limit, you know, what kind of limit. Some places, I mean, here in Marin, I mean, the bikes are pretty amazing. I mean, a lot of carbon fiber bikes and all that. But there'll be places where it's limited. And then uh, the third will be subsidy. You know, what can we do with that? And you know, we go to um, a lot of the people that provide health care. You know, they're into it. You know, they know that um, a third of our uh, 10-year-olds are pre-diabetic. And this is a program to keep kids away from diabetes, you know, and really help them lifelong. That's funny. I grew up racing go-karts, which is interesting oh, yeah. because it's the sport which translated well into loving cyclocross is mm-hmm. a pretty similar flow. Even the little track. had an engine. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But one thing <laughs> that was interesting, making it accessible to me as a kid, and you didn't have to have a bunch of money because they were the same right. restrictor engine. Everyone had this, run the same tires. The carts were basically all the same. Yep. And um, I think, you know, that sort of model where it's like you can come in, you're all running the same thing. Right. Right. Yeah, no, they have to do that, you know, for for this to work. And, it, and it's fine, you know, because we can make a bike that's relatively cheap and, you know, it works fine. You know, just a little hardtail, you know, that's it. Nice little fork on it. What about the going back to the 70s and kind of creating that movement that then spread into what mountain biking has become today? those pockets of kind of the coolness and you're out on your own and that create those movements. I compared to like what I knew as a kid and growing up in the eighties with the BMX scene and what you were part of, you were part of something so much bigger than the bike, right? Like I identified with that much more than I did just riding the bike. It was like the people that you look to. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's going out and doing things, you know, they're big and, epic and crazy and when i was a kid when i was like 12 13 belmont bike club and this the old guy larry wolpel and he was like an londoner east londoner mechanic for pan american and he was hilarious oh telling all the jokes all the time and he dragged my little i was like 12 13 I'd go on 80 mile rides, you know, and he'd make sure I'd make it back, you know. <laughs> you know, I weighed like 89 pounds. It was crazy. And he pushed me up the hill sometimes. One time he uh, got a piece of fence wire, wrapped it around my head, too, wrapped it around a seat post and hauled me, you know, <laughs> northward into a big headwind on Highway One till we got up to Half Moon Bay. We went to Pete's and it was this old Italian there. And, and he'd always feed uh, bike riders for free. And I get, 
uh, eat some food at Pete's and get back over the hill, Half Moon Bay Hill. You know, it's like uh, just always taking care, making sure, mm -hmm. you know. And I know it's just the whole, the whole looking at the magazines, you know, and seeing the epic rides and all the epic races, you know, and all that, all that stuff. And it was like this whole, like, um, I think it was, you know, I really like is the beauty of the machine. You know, it was amazing. It was, you could do this all like human powered, you know, make all this distance, go all this way, you know, do all this stuff. It was like, uh, it still exists. I mean, kids like to feel like Superman, you know, and sometimes you feel like Superman when you're on a bike, you know, you feel like you're flying. Definitely. I still do. Even my weakened state, my old state, I still feel like I'm flying sometimes, just completely. So <laughs> getting into your weekend state, what have you, for training, as you've gotten older, what have you noticed? Like what's what works for you for staying in shape and getting out? Uh, it's it's more um, important to stay for like a diet, right? It's mm -hmm. harder to keep weight off, easy to put weight on. Harder to put out just absolute horsepower, you know, like I would before. So, you know, longer rides, yeah, easier rides, you know. It's what about diet? What's what's your go-to for Always, consistency? I got to, you know, it's it just not like I keep things away 100%. I mean, I'll eat beef, but just tiny amounts, you know, yeah. not a lot. I and mean, it's like just a little essence of this and that. I eat a lot of fish, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's simple, you know. It's just like I'll eat a lot of petrolia sole, and you know, it's funny, and just a fair amount of veggies because they fill you up, and make you feel good, and then other stuff. Lately, I've been cooking for my wife, and I learned to cook from her father and Greek diners. Right, that gets into too much comfort food. I'm really good at making comfort food. You want me to make you a leg <laughs> of lamb? You want me to make you some, uh, you know, feta meatballs or all this stuff? Oh man. But that's dangerous. I got to stay away from that stuff. You know, it's just like I could sit there and eat those things like crazy. So it's like it's it's good to just have a program and have a thing where you're done, you know, yeah. and just not uh, blow the whole thing. But I do that, and then I'll just go out and ride, you know, two or three hours a day. And if I do that every day and I watch my diet, hey, the weight comes right off, you know. And it's crazy. It's like my brother. My brother's a little bit younger than me. He's six years younger than me. And my brother, he says to me, I gained a pound a year. You know, that's been the average over the last 15 years. And I say, Rick, that's 10 calories a day. Too much. 10 calories. That's all you got to cut out. And it's sort of like impossible. You know what I'm saying? I take a totally different approach. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's creeping up. It's creeping up. It's creeping up. And this is like, okay, on the campaign, a month, two months of the campaign. The campaign is like, you know, burn an extra so-called thousand calories a day, you know? And then I can eat, I can eat better, but I can't go crazy. You know, that's the thing. That's just crazy. He's, you know, you get into this thing, you, you ride hard enough to get your appetite. It, it seems like to get your appetite goes up first before you, you start burning off calories. You know, part of the whole thing is like, you're out there on the road and I won't eat a whole lot when I'm out on the road, you know, like, if you're digesting properly and you absorb well and you're really healthy that way, you get a healthy guts and healthy guts are easy to maintain. Believe me, you know, easier than the muscle and everything. You can absorb about 200 calories an hour, right? You get, you're in really good shape. You're young. You can be burning a thousand calories an hour. You're in crummy shape. You know, you're 35. 
oh man, you're burning like 250, 300 calories an hour, right? That's mm-hmm. it. That's all you can burn, you know? You get in good shape. You can be between, you know, 35, 65 like I'm at. You can burn four, five, 600 calories an hour. That's mm-hmm. it, you know? And the way you make up that, you know, you're never going to produce more than 200 calories an hour from your, well, you're eating, you know, all the sugary stuff. And then you take all that stuff, you eat more than 200 calories and you're sort of like just putting it on the storage area, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny. You aren't even using it, you know? So like part of the whole thing is getting into the state of like being able to, uh, a lot of your energy come from the anaerobic, you know? Uh, untrained individual will take only 30% of their energy from the anaerobic and the rest is by breathing hard, right? And somebody that's well-trained, you'll take 70% from your anaerobic. And that's why you'll say, hey, the dude wasn't even breathing hard and he ran, you know, just rode away from me. And I, I can still get to that place. I don't have the horsepower I had, you know. I can't put out, you know, 800 watts for, you know, a minute and a half, you know. I could put out, you know, 300 watts for a minute and a half, you know. <laughs> it sounds so pathetic, but, you know, that's, no. but that's a lot of, it's actually good. You know, right. you go pretty fast. You know, it feels really good if you can do that. And if I get in really good shape, I can get back to that anaerobic state where I'm just, I can fly all, I can ride 100 miles right from here to Santa Cruz and just feel faster in the last hour than the first hour. You know, I think I could still get to that place. You know, it really feels good. You just can't get there as fast. Like I'll spend, you said I'd train hard for five weeks. And at the end of five weeks, oh man, I'd be flying and nothing would hurt me. And now it takes like four months. <laughs> you know, I lay on the bed at night, oh, touch me, rub me, saying that to my <laughs> wife, you know, and I hurt. And it takes longer. You know, and I don't and I don't do it all the time. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be one of these guys. I don't think that's healthy either. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think you should be go at something that hard all the time. So I'll take off I'll train hard like that and then I won't train that hard for a year and a half. Yeah. And I'd spend another six months, eight months training really hard, get back in shape. What about the role of coaches, nutritionists, the community of support yeah. around athletes? How has that evolved? Maybe I don't you, you know it, something? Yeah. I've ignored it, you know, a lot. Too much, you know, I think. And it's uh I mean I pay a lot of attention to what's coming down in the papers and things on nutrition and things. There's always stuff coming along on that. But I haven't used a lot of personal coaches. They didn't exist in my day so much. You know, like I had the old guy, Larry Walpole, for a while. I had a guy, Fritz Liedl, who was an Austrian, and he was a really good road racer. He was, a, he was actually uh, won Austrian Nationals one year. But, you know, not compared to what really good riders really need. Because uh, I look at what I did in my road racing career, and I made a lot of stupid mistakes, I think. And... With training somewhat, but especially in uh, strategy and tactics in the event itself, you know, it's a huge part of it right there. You know, I mean, racing competition is one-third being a nomad, one-third being an athlete, and one-third dealing with the bullshit, you know. it's like you got to have all that stuff together. Uh, and what about making it as a professional in cycling or endurance sports in general? How have you seen that? Well, it's like, to me, I mean, that was the thing I wanted to do more than anything. I think that it's like one of the most fun things when you got it all together and you're in one of those big packs with all that energy, you know, it's incredible. 
and how fast everybody is as a group, it's amazing. And how you can be like blown away of how fast it is, but then you can work up to where like, wow, you got that kind of speed going on too. It's like, it, it is a truly an amazing sport when you get close to it and you check it out, you know, and you know, that desire never leaves, you know, it's, it's like to have that kind of horsepower and that type of like, uh, you know, those cards to deal and everything. It's like, you feel this like Superman, it's nuts, you know, how, how, how great the whole thing can feel. So I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What about the sponsorships and the the funding going into the Oh, uh, it is a big mess. The, athletes, the yeah. whole thing's a mess. They don't get a cut of the TV stuff. They don't have a good union. They have a really crummy. Mm-hmm. They get a union that's sort of a a fake union. It's a just a face. They don't do anything. They don't negotiate for it. It's the saddest thing. I mean, you know, the saddest fact is some of the best women's racers in the world, they got to quit racing and go out and find a real job cuz they got to stop because they got to the top of what you can make as a woman racer professionally. And uh, that's not nearly enough, you know? It's like nothing, you know? It's it's a mess. And it's, um, you know, you Google uh, top 100 um, athletic contracts in the world, and 80 of them are American baseball contracts. And they'll be, you know, from five to 10 years long, mostly. And a lot of, um, you know, bike contracts are notorious for being one or two years and everything. And to me, that's crazy, because it's like, you know, for the... The sponsor as well as the sponsee. I mean, you know, the, you get an identity with a rider and everything, and then it's all over and everything. That's this not a healthy relationship. But the basis of the problem is that there is no riders' union and that the riders won't, um, you know, they don't demand enough out of the number one uh, group, which is the Tour de France, and the Tour de France guys don't want to share it, and, you can, and they have no responsibility to want to share it. I mean, people will say, oh, they should do this, they should do that. Oh, wait a minute, this is their business. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. <laughs> Come on, grow up, kid. Sure they should. <laughs> yeah, just keep saying that, all right? And that's the thing. There's no strong writers' union. That's the only thing that could get them to, like, um, cooperate. Because it's not only the writers that don't get the shares. It's like the other events, you know, really, truly. You know, there's no competition for them. So it's like uh, we've gotten ourselves into that thing. The Tour de France gets much more exposure worldwide in the media than, I mean, you know, 100 times more than the second biggest race. And that's a real issue to the whole thing. You know, it's just over and done. Are you on, I mean, I've seen you on social media some, but are you, do you think that that can have a role in elevating well, that would have what a huge role. not doing. Yeah, it would be yeah. A, it's, you, you got to have pushes, a power, yeah. you know, a position. It's like, you know, you can push against, it's like, you know, the, the Japanese know this. I mean, the whole, the wrestler thing. It's like, it's all about what you're anchored against, you know. You can push all you want. And if you're not anchored correctly, you know, mm-hmm. you're not pushing, nothing's going to move. And, uh, you know, the only thing that's going to like, the only push, the only leverage they have is like, well, who's the entertainer here? Who's providing the entertainment? And what kind of a deal do they have? And the deal they have is such a ridiculous third-party deal because it's like they they have a deal with their own sponsors, not with the television program at all, you know? They are what sells the TV program, but then it's like, you know, there's nothing there. So that that's the link that's missing. And you look at the other big worldwide sports, and all of them have and have had a union of some type for, you know, the athletes, for the people on that side, you know, providing the entertainment, doing a thing, you know? So 
until the sport gets that. And, and there's some writers that have been talking about that, you know, but I, I don't see anything on the horizon at this moment that's going to change it, you know, because it needs that like crazy. Because mm-hmm. right now it's just the sponsors take care of the thing and they can come and they can go and they do. They come and go too quickly. So it's a, it's a real problem. On the women's side, it's actually some things are starting to loose up and improve, you know, and when they get really quality and that means that, you know, they've got to give, um, it's not just a equal prize money so much as it's equal time out there. And it's sort of ridiculous. Like you look at the Tokyo Olympics, the time trial is like for women's half the distance, you know, and it's just like, it's an insult right there. It's ridiculous. It's a big statement. What does it say? It doesn't say something very nice at all. You know, mm. it just said bad things about the athletes. It says the women athletes aren't as good as the men athletes. It says it very loud and clear. And it's not, it's not the way you want to go. You know, it's not the modern world at all. You know, so it, it's funny. I mean, cycling is, um, especially in an older practice, it's really behind. Mountain bike, I will say, you know, they do give a lot more, you know, equality in the, in the racing. So stepping out of the pro world and just into kind of future of biking and just outdoor sports in general, what, what do you see coming down the road that you're excited about? Well, it's events where people have a good time, yeah. you know, and uh, it's even like a few weeks ago, I was at a trail builders conference, you know, in Switzerland and a guy from Denmark there talking about their kids program. It's like their kids racing has got a handicap system. You start out the day by doing, you know, all these little tricks, little skinnies and little things, technical stuff. And you get 20 seconds of dab, you know. And so some kids get a head start. Some kids got to start behind. So it puts a completely different element into the thing as being one of the more important elements, which I think is great, especially for kids that, in those sort of age groups, they come in a lot of different horsepower ranges, you know, different sizes. And that's always been a thing with the bike. It's a, we say it's a great equalizer, you know, it, you know, it doesn't matter what size you are so much as you'll find a way and everything. So, you know, it's just more interesting events like that. That's for kids. And then for grownups, I mean, there's all these events, you get different aspects to it. You know, it's not just about horsepower or about, total skill, but combinations thereof and things that are more fun, you know, and then events that, you know, they got music, they got good music, good food, because people want to have a good time in every category. All right. Well, anything I missed? There's so many stories we could go through, but... You got time. You're doing a lot more (laughs) of this. We'll talk to you after you've done this for five, ten years. All right. Well, thanks, Gary. All right. Thank you. Yeah, it was just fun. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or give us your feedback, go to commonthreadsmedia.com or leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to Alicia Barrett, who edited the show. You've been listening to The Common Threads from Common Threads Media.